Welcome to Change by Attraction, a podcast for people who want to change some aspect of their organization. I'm your host, Esther Derby, author of Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change. In the course of observing, leading, and participating in many organizational changes, I'm discovering how to nurture change in ways that are often more effective than many of the more prevalent methods. I believe these practices enable sustainable change, while the others, though very common, often lead to disappointment. I'm going to present these practices in pairs, just like they do in the Agile Manifesto. First, prioritize responding to what is over relying on a process to solve your organizational issues. Now, people tend to think that change starts with a vision, but it really starts with where you are. Some truths about systems. They do what they do. The results you're achieving in your organization are what your organization is currently capable of. Systems do not jump to some new shiny potential, and a process alone won't provide dramatically different results. But you can expand your capabilities. So if you think of your organization as three concentric circles, there's what you can do now, what you can do next with some conscious effort and support, and then there's the potential of what the organization could do. You can't jump from where you are to potential. You have to start where you are and move to what's next. Work with what you've got. And try to get to the next best thing, and then the next best thing, and the next, and the next. Don't try to jump. You have to keep your eye on the horizon, your ultimate goal, but also aim for the next best spot. Once you're there, you can reassess and figure out what the next next best thing is. Overlaying a process, even a really good process, most likely won't change the fundamental capabilities of your organization. You have to look at what is, work from there. Second, emphasize noticing observable signals over tracking activity metrics. There's a big difference between the outcome you want to achieve with a change and the project that you undertake to get there. Most of the time, activity metrics tell you how your project is going, like the number of people who've been trained or the number of teams who have something they call a backlog. These metrics tell you that people are doing something, but they don't tell you whether that activity is actually getting you any closer to where you want to go. When your goal is a long way off, you need steering signals that will help you make decisions along the way. It'll show you you're making progress and still headed in the direction you wanted to go towards that outcome. Or sometimes they may help you realize that what you had hoped for isn't really what you want. So figure out the markers that will help you steer change. It might be related to product quality or reduced turnover or people asking a different kind of questions. All of these little signs could be tangible indications of a change, signs along the way towards an outcome. Third, opt for working with motivated individuals and teams over mandating that everyone do the same thing at the same time. One of the 
strategies I often use is the attraction principle. Find some teams that want to try working in the way you want to work or want to try the new thing you're trying to bring into your organization. You can put out a call. You can do a selection process. You can form a team specifically for a pilot. And this is useful in a number of ways. The first thing is if the desired change doesn't work, even with really motivated people and teams, that's super useful information. You may, you may need to do more preparation, adding skills, updating policies, maybe developing capabilities, or you may need a different idea. But at least you haven't bet the farm. When you work this way, uh, the people who want to try it are more invested. They're motivated to deal with the inevitable setbacks and problems and trying to get things to work. You'll learn about organizational obstacles. If they do get it to work, these motivated people, then you've taken the, uh, in quotes, it will never work here argument off the table. When it works, other people may get curious and want to try it too. And when some critical mass of the organization shifts, the rest will usually come along. Check out Episode 2, Working by Attraction, and Episode 5, Influence, for some more ideas on this. Fourth, put your energy into nurturing implicit knowledge and judgment over following recipes. Many, many training classes focus on explicit knowledge. That's the stuff that's easy to write down, easy to codify, easy to assess. It's recipes. So, for example, the last time I looked at the basic CSM class offered by the Scrum Alliance, they had, I think it was 36 published learning objectives. The vast majority of those are about recalling specific facts or describing what those facts mean. That's explicit knowledge. Training often focuses on the external and easily observable aspects, which are often less important than the thought process and the implicit knowledge behind those practices. That sort of training isn't so good at conveying implicit knowledge, which is the kind of knowledge gained through experiences. It's the basis for judgment and problem solving, the know when that makes the know how useful. Further, when people are learning something new, it's just supernatural for them to fit it into their existing cognitive frame, to assimilate the new concept into existing knowledge. So without transferring implicit knowledge, whatever you're doing will likely look a lot like what you had before. You know, if you're trying to do Scrum, your Scrum masters will look and act a lot like project managers, and roadmaps will look a lot like committed plans. I mean, this isn't surprising, it's, and it's not a human failure. It's just what happens when you rely on explicit knowledge and don't attend to the thought process. So your journey may start with explicit knowledge, stuff you can learn in a course or read from a book, but it can't end there. Fifth, choose honoring past, present, and people instead of pushing past resistance. Really, most people want to do a good job, and they're trying to do a good job. They're probably doing their best to work within the practices mandated by the last big change effort or their last manager. 
I can totally relate to their skepticism, especially when some newcomer or whippersnapper swoops in to tell people how to do their work. Now, almost nobody likes to be told they're doing things wrong, especially by someone who has just arrived and doesn't understand their context. So acknowledge what is working. See if you can build on it. Recognize what's worth keeping and try to hold on to it. No matter what the long-term gain, there's always some loss involved with the change. It may be you lose your routine, your feeling of competence, your relationships. Pushing people tends to raise a defensive response, and people may respond by holding on tighter to what they regard as their way. When I hear people talk about resistance, what I hear is, People aren't changing with the speed and enthusiasm that I desire. That's how I translate it in my mind. People don't resist change. They respond to change. And that response is chock full of information. But once it gets labeled as resistance, that information is delegitimized. So paradoxically, honoring the past helps people let go of it. Finally, focus on creating conditions for change instead of rolling out a change. Look at what is and what holds the pattern in place. This is your starting point. It's where you need to start working for a change. Keep the end in mind and aim for the next best thing. Figure out what people need to know and understand in order to do this new thing. Work on building those skills and that understanding. Don't overlook implicit knowledge. Start with motivated individuals, not mandates. Test things out. You're likely to learn some really important things that will inform what you do next. Remember that you're working with people here. Take them into account, treat them with respect, and acknowledge their response to change. If you attend to the practices I mentioned first in each pair, you stand a much better chance of creating the conditions for a change that will actually take hold and flourish. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed putting it together. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the ideas I've talked about here. So drop me an email, tell me what you think and what you try. I'll be back next month with more Change by Attraction.